Amen. Amen. Good morning. Decided Church, thank you so much. Worship team, wow, what a powerful worship set. Um, for those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Will. I have the opportunity and privilege to preach to you today and in our current sermon series, Divergent. If you haven't been here, if it's your first Sunday, we're going through uh, the first six chapters of Daniel, chapter by chapter. So we're covering a whole chapter today. So uh, you know, it's like drinking water through a fire hose, but nonetheless, we have had an absolute blast, right? It's been a lot of fun. Uh, but nonetheless, if uh, you have your Bibles with you, we'll be in Daniel chapter 5, so you can either scroll there. I always think when Jim said scroll, I thought of like a scroll, you know, like like old school. It, it, it's going back, you know what I'm saying? First it was scroll, and then it was read, and now it's scroll again, but on a phone nonetheless. Uh, but uh, Daniel chapter 5 is where we find our story today. And um, the title of my message uh, is called Writing on the Wall. Uh, Writing on the Wall. Uh, obviously, uh, this comes directly from the, the uh, actual story. And a lot of people know this story specifically for that saying, because it's a saying that's very, no, uh, really a normal occurrence, a very uh, well-used uh, story, well, well-used phrase within America, right? Like, fate, oh, we got to face the writing on the wall, the thing which is inevitable. And so that's the name of the, uh, the sermon. But uh, as in. Introduction, I wanted to pose a question. Has anybody here ever had deja vu? Let me, let me see a show of hands, right? Like, there's a lot of, I don't know if not everybody might have it, but I've had deja vu before. It's like, it's like something happens. I'm like, whoa, dude, I've dreamt about this before, bro. What's happening? Why is it, you know, like, everybody been there? You're like, wait a minute, what does this mean? I've dreamt about this. Why is this happening? Oh man, and, and honestly, what's what's really funny is if you look at it uh, within the realm of what's actually happening, because I got interested, I was like, man, deja vu is so strange, I need to know what's going on, but what, really what's happening is, is there's actually a split second delay in transferring information from one side of your brain to the other. So catch this, is anybody here right-handed? Any right-handed people in the house? Hello, that's me. Yes, that's right, right-hand dominant. Did you know that if you're right-handed, you use your left brain more? That's more of your logic side, more of your linear side, more of your mathematical side. So if, you, if you're right-handed, you're more likely to enjoy math class like me. Uh, if you're left-handed, you're more right brain. You're the creative one. You're the one that's very artsy, right, Jim? Where's the gyms in the house? Any left-handed people? Yeah, y'all are strange. But nonetheless, so, so, but what's really cool about that is what's happening is, is the reason that you're feeling this deja vu is because uh, you, the excuse me, so my right hand, I'm right-handed, I'm left side. So the right side of my brain is receiving information twice. So the first time is directly, right? I see something happen and my right side of the brain is receiving it. But then there's a split-second delay of information transfer from the dominant side of my brain to the other side of my brain. And so it feels as if I've seen it before, but really you didn't, well, you did, your, your brain just processed it twice in milliseconds. So it seems as if you dreamed about it. Now, I know there's a lot of you Deja vu people who are probably like, nah, Will, I've dreamt about, I don't care what you say about my brain and how it works. I don't care if I'm left brain, right brain. I know I dreamt about this. I know. I'll leave it at that, nonetheless. Okay, I'll, leave, I'll let you, I'll let you uh, keep dreaming, nonetheless. Um, but for me, that's what I think. Um, so the reason I bring up deja vu is because the story we read today, it kind of seems as if we read this story already, right? Um, it feels like the, the book of Daniel, really, all the stories in it kind of seem a bit deja vu-ish, right? Like chapters 2, 4, and 5 are so similar. Um, 
So you have a king has a revelation or a dream. The interpreters get brought in. They fail. Daniel comes in, pronounces judgment. The king praises God, right? I mean, that's like the whole story of Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 4. But also kind of in Daniel chapter 5, except we'll see at the end that there's actually a different ending. Instead of the king praising God and repenting, there, this story ends a bit more harshly. But nonetheless, if you guys want to stand, we'll read the whole story together. All 31 verses. Don't worry, when I go back through it verse by verse, we'll skip a bunch of it, but I just want to read the whole story so you can get the whole scope, the whole realm. You haven't been reading it like I have all week. I was trying to skip some like big chunks, but I was like, they won't understand the whole story unless I read it all. So uh, this is what the Word of God says in Daniel chapter 5, starting in verse 1. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. I bet that felt good, whoever that was. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebi, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, the one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirits of the gods is in you, and you have insight, intelligent, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and the enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father, Nebi, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to be humble, he humbled. But when his heart 
became arrogant and hardened with pride. He was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. By the way, this is a very similar story to last week. He's basically telling the story Jim preached. So if you, if you missed chapter 4, you need to go back and listen to it. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He, was, he lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until they acknowledged the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets them over anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and of gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor God, who holds in his hands the way, your life, and all of your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription in what is written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Here is what the words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom will be divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, King of Babylon, uh, Belshazzar, king of Babylon, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this story and how somehow, some way, your word is timeless, and this story has meaning for us here all the way in 2019. So God, I pray that as we dive into this passage and we look at the historical context and we understand what's going on within the, the realm of everything here, God, we pray that you would just bring to light the things that we as people here in this church need to work on here in 2019. We, we love you, Father. We ask that this time, this message will bring honor to your name where we would exalt your son, Jesus Christ, as head of this church. We love you and give you thanks. Amen. You guys can have a seat. The writing on the wall. That's a pretty cool story, wasn't it? Um, so just to kind of give you a little contextual background, obviously this guy Belshazzar comes out of nowhere, right? We hear the story of King Nebi. We hear his salvation story. That's right. King Nebuchadnezzar, ruler of the Babylons, is going to be in heaven one day. We're all going to see him and be like, bro, you got turned into an animal. That was weird. Never heard that one before. That's a cool testimony. Nonetheless... We, he, we see in Daniel chapter 5 a switch. All of a sudden, this new guy comes on the scene, and his name is Belshazzar. Uh, let's go through verses 1 through 4 if you want to pull them up. Um, just going to give you a little bit of information, background information, to kind of help you understand what's going on within the realm of context. So King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for thousands of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. First off, I want to talk about Belshazzar as Nebuchadnezzar's successor. So here we see in this passage, he, it's, it call, they call Nebuchadnezzar his father, uh, but the the thing about ancient Near East uh, writings, things the, the the term father or title father actually denotes a variety of relationships. Um, so even if they're within your ancestry, they'll be considered your father. Kind of like we always say that we, you know, our father, those of the faith that you know, 
Abraham is our father. You know, like, Father Abraham had many sons. That, that's the same idea, the same connotation here. So just because it says King Nebi was his father, it probably wasn't his father. Uh, historical evidence actually shows that it was probably his grandfather. So in King Nebi's passing, the kingdom was in turmoil, right? And so when King Nebi passed, his uh, eldest son, Amel Marduk, that's his name, very strange. You can find uh, things written about him in 2 Kings 25. He takes over, and then a few, uh, about two years later, his brother-in-law, Nergal Sharizer, actually kills him. And he rules for about six years. But what happens is then he is also killed by a coup d'etat. Coup d'etat. Y'all know what that is? Coup d'etat? It's basically like a rebellion uh, uh, over the um, government. So basically somebody comes in, not, not necessarily with any kind of political agenda, just a random group of people come in and they kill this guy. And so the next person in line would have been a gentleman by the name of Nabonidus. Nabonidus was the second son of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nabonidus was um, the actual father, they would say, of this guy named Belshazzar. Now, Nabonidus was a strange man. He wanted to exalt the moon god named Sin. How ironic, S-I-N. He wanted to exalt the moon god Sin as chief deity of the Babylonian pantheon. So within the realm of Nebuchadnezzar, the very top god was the god of Marduk, okay? So when Nabonidus took over, he said, hey, I'm done with Marduk. Let's put our chief deity as this moon god named Sin, S-I-N. Very ironic that it's named that. But nonetheless, what happens is he makes this hierarchical change within, um, within the Babylonian pantheon and it actually caused a little bit of an uproar within Babylon. And so what happens is, is Nabonidus is actually forced to move away. He moves southeast of Edom to a place called Teman and he left his son there named Belshazzar to rule as regent over the capital. So that's how Belshazzar gets into the scene. If you guys wanted to know, that's just fun information for you. It doesn't have much to do with the text or my points, but it is nice to know. So just so you know, also, scholars say there's about a 23-year period that happens between Nebuchadnezzar's story in Daniel chapter 4 and what's happening here in Daniel chapter 5. So we're looking at 23 years. That would mean Daniel has been serving faithfully within this exile for about... 70 years, he's probably at late 80s in his age. Just to give you a little bit of a uh, understanding of where he might be within, his, uh, within the realm of his ministry. 70 plus years of faithful ministry to a foreign god. Very awesome. But nonetheless, what's uh, even cooler about this time is when this specific story is happening, right? We see Belshazzar uh, so they brought in the goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the kings and the nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now, what's so strange is that Belshazzar is throwing a party. And it doesn't seem strange because we're just reading the text. And we're like, okay, he throws a party. But what's, if we look within the context of time, there is during this exact time, Nabonidus, his father, would have already been captured, and this actual kingdom had already been attacked and pretty much overtaken by the Medes and Persians. So the only thing left within the realm of Babylon, if you will, is the capital. It was the only thing left standing. This is where, uh, this is where Belshazzar would have found himself. And as a matter of fact, at this point in time within history, the kingdom had been, the capital of Babylon had been attacked for at least two years. 
Two years had gone by. The Medes and Persians have been trying to penetrate, have been trying to get in to the capital of Babylon at this point in time when he throws this party. So he's been under siege. The city that he lives in has been under siege for two whole years. But Belshazzar was convinced that the city was impenetrable. Vast sums of money had been invested in its defense. A massive double wall surrounded the whole city, 300 feet high and 87 feet thick. Hundreds of strategically placed towers for surveillance and attack. As a matter of fact, no shortage of water was an issue because the Euphrates River ran, actually ran diagonally through the wall and the city. So there would be no shortage of water, and the food could even be grown in the walls because they had an aqueduct, they, they had an irrigation system that allowed water to go throughout the whole city. And so they probably, given the amount of food, they probably stockpiled from their rule and reign, plus what they already are uh, accruing from growing within the walls of the city. They probably had 20 years worth of food. So King Belshazzar is like, Shh, they're never getting in this place. Let's just throw a party. That's kind of, that's the scene. This guy's whole kingdom has been taken. His father has been captured. The only thing left to his name is this city, and he's partying. He's not stressed. He's not worried about it. He's not even thinking about it. What an idiot. Nonetheless. <laughs> so really, he's throwing this party as a way to mock the Mede and Persian Empire. A way to defy the enemy that surrounds his city walls. Dude, he throws a rager, right? He even brings in his concubines. I don't need to tell you what that means, do I? <laughs> um, then what happens is due to his alcohol consumption, he begins to do irrational things. We all know that's true. He does things he probably wouldn't have done if he were sober. Not only is he throwing a rager in the midst of a battle and a war and act as if he's completely safe, but then he takes it a step further not only is he defying the Mede and Persian empire then he begins to defy the god of the Jews he uses holy objects holy objects for idol worship he takes the things that were meant for worship of god in the temple and uses them for his own self indulgence for not just himself but for everybody there by the way it was a very normal thing for kings to have thousands of people in his courts and he would literally get drunk in front of them as kind of like a show it was like an entertainment thing so this isn't abnormal this is a very normal thing for him to do even though it wouldn't be normal in the midst of being attacked all around you but nonetheless we'll get to that later on then we go on to verses five through six and the finger shows up, right? The fingers of a human hand appear and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched it as it wrote and his face turned pale and he was so frightened. His legs became weak and his knees were knocking. This actually isn't the first time the finger of God shows up. As a matter of fact, when speaking of the 10 plagues on Egypt, the Bible says that this was the, the magicians, when seeing all the crazy things that were happening, they said, this is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. Did you know, besides the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, scholars say the greatest act of redemption within human history is the ten plagues, the, the exodus of Egypt out of, excuse me, the exodus of Israel out of Egypt. And then, not only is it the, not the first time it shows up, but it's also not the last time because in Luke 20, excuse me, Luke ch chapter 11, verse 20, Jesus says, I perform these miracles and I cast out these demons by the finger of God. 
So if you're telling me that the finger of God shows up within the greatest act of redemption besides the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it also shows up within the realm and ministry of Jesus Christ, this story, even though it's kind of glanced over, over even though it's kind of like, oh, what is this about? It has to have huge implications for the redemption story. Because why else would the finger of God show up? So it's not something to be taken lightened. It's not, I think it's a story that needs to be preached more. But nonetheless, the finger of God shows up. He writes in the wall. Let's go to verse 10. Skip to verse 10, right? He freaks out. I'll, give you a little, I'll just summarize what happens. He freaks out. He's like, dude, I need to get my people up in here. So he gets his people up in here. The enchanters, right? That's the way that, that kingdom was able to interpret things that happened. They would bring up all these enchanters and magicians and they'd say, figure this out. What does this mean? Of course, they can't. And then I have to imagine... When we read verse 10, I love this because women, they, when they show up on the scene, it's so funny. Let's read it. I'll just read it again. The queen, who's not partaking, by the way, in all the debauchery, she's off somewhere else in the, in the palace. She hears the voices of the kings and his nobles and comes into the banquet hall. May the king live forever. By the way, I kind of read this with a little bit of an eye roll. Like, may the king live forever. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, hello, you should know him, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, again, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Diviners. Um, so, let's see here. Um, you know what? It's so funny as, as this story shows us that the apple doesn't really fall far from the tree. Think about this queen mother, right? By the way, this, the, the actual word there in the Hebrew is queen mother, which probably means it's actually Nebuchadnezzar's widow because it's only been about eight years since he passed away. So she's probably still living. She's probably still living in the palace, and she, she's probably seen all the things King Nebi has seen. She saw King Nebuchadnezzar become an animal and then get rebirth and literally saved and then become a king yet again. So nonetheless... King Nebi's wife is in the palace, and she's wise enough to not partake in that crazy stuff that's going down the hall. She hears them complaining, and she's like, man, you are just like your daddy, just like your granddaddy, hard-headed, and forgets about Daniel. Every time, it's like he waits the last second to get to Daniel. Jim mentioned it last week. It's like every time these stories happen, it's like they always forget about Daniel. He's like, listen, I've had to have this conversation with your grandfather a few times, so I might as well come and have it with you. You see, you feel the flavor there? And what's so funny um, She's probably speaking in a bit of a disapproving tone. She highlights the same issues that Daniel does later on, right? He, he hadn't taken time to learn the family history, or he hadn't taken time to learn from history itself. As a matter of fact, if you look in the Hebrew, she says it like this. In the days of your father, Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king. Well, they, they take one of them out just uh, because it's kind of... Um, superfluous, if you will. It doesn't really necessarily need to be there to get the same thought across. But really, if you look at it in the Hebrew, the word father shows up three times pretty much consecutively to kind of put an emphasis. Hey, listen, do you not remember what you've come from? Do you not remember your family history? Which is what Daniel accuses him of later on, right? You saw what happened to King Nebi, your grandfather, and you saw how he became an animal, and you saw how he repented, and God restored him, and yet you still haven't humbled yourself. So, so he's, she's like, I don't understand, man. Man, they're just lower on the totem pole, man. I'm the queen mother just in the back doing good things. All right, anyway. You know, what I love about this is um, at the very end right here, it says he did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, Belshazzar 
very close to Belshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, solve difficult problems. The word there, actually really cool, it's called, it says, explain riddles and dissolve doubt. I kind of like that. Nonetheless, call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. Uh, a few things about divergent living, if you will, because that's what this has all been all about, right? Divergent living. Did you know that if you live a divergent life, divergent living brings about a reputation that precedes you. People will know you, will know of you before you know of them. That's how it is. If we are people who live divergent lives, live lives that are, that are, that are separated from the world, live lives that are developed differently than the rest of the world, what happens is you begin to have a reputation that precedes you. You go into place and like, hey, I've heard of you. And, and not, only does it, not, not only does divergent living bring about a reputation that, reputation that precedes you, but divergent living transcends generations. Listen, this is like three or four, well, technically two generations down, and Daniel is still. And by the way, probably what's happened here, the reason Daniel wasn't brought in when the enchanters and diviners and all the people were there is probably because they were already at the party, and Daniel wasn't. He separated himself from that. Either that, or he could have been demoted once King Nebi was down. And out of his luck, maybe through the death of Amal Marduk and the death of uh, that other guy, um, he could have been overlooked or forgotten about or he could have been retired he could have just been like i'm done with this i'm 87 years old i i'm old i can't do this anymore it could have been a lot of things but nonetheless he finds himself not at this party but nonetheless the queen mother remembers him and that's exactly what happens with divergent living it transcends generations you you are remembered for generations to come and then we get to my favorite part of this passage verse 16 through 17 now I have heard, all right, so anyway, they call for Daniel. The Daniel comes in, Daniel comes in, and then this is what the king says. And now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have your gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made ruler, or third highest ruler in the kingdom. By the way, third highest ruler would make sense to our whole idea that there's Nabonidus who lives elsewhere, then there's Belshazzar who is the regent leader of Babylon and then of course he wouldn't put anyone above him Belshazzar wouldn't so of course he would put him as third highest ruler in the kingdom behind him and his father Nabonidus nonetheless then verse 17 which is my I think is the most important verse in this whole story I like it a lot I might be reading into it you can tell me but then Daniel says this Daniel answered the king you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your awards to someone else Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Listen, you can, Daniel says, listen, you can keep your presence. You can keep your playthings. I don't need that stuff. So I don't know if you guys have followed the, the, the no words throughout our sermon series, right? Daniel chapter one, divergent li, divergence live with no compromise. Daniel chapter two, divergence live with no impossibilities. Daniel chapter three, divergence live with no distractions. Daniel chapter 4, divergence live with no arrogance. Daniel chapter 5, divergence live with no entitlement. No entitlement. See, I think so often Christians are the most entitled people in the world. 
And, and don't get me wrong, I think, it, I think it's actually a sign of something good because, right, the Father cares for us and He loves us and He gives us the things that we desire, right? It even says in Scripture, asking it will be given to you. It says in Scripture that if you delight yourself in the Lord, He will give you the desires of your heart. Well, what happens is when we continually receive the blessings of God and we, we see the fruit, we see the fruit of, of being a Christian and, and being a Christ follower, we see all these things and we're receiving the blessings of God. What happens is if we're not careful, we, we begin to become entitled and we think we deserve something of that. We, we, we forget that everything we receive is by grace, by the grace of God. God has blessed us with those things because he's a good and perfect father, not because we deserve them in any way. And so this entitlement mentality comes in to our thinking and we begin to, to get bitter and we begin to question God, right? We think that God owes us something or that we deserve better than the hand that we've been dealt. What if we as a church were to take away the lights, take away the chairs, take away the stage? Would the word of God be enough for us to meet together still? I'm so afraid we're creating this, this Christian culture and I, I, it's like it's so hard to combat and battle. But is it? And David Platt preaches this all the time. He literally says it all the time. But it's like, at what point in time is the word of God enough for us? You know, it's, it's what if we, not only that, not only would we, if we took away all of these things, the show, the entertainment, the fun, the fall fest, would the word of God still be enough to keep us together? Here's another thought. What if we took away the blessings of God? Would you still worship him for who he is? What if, what if we took that away? It's, did you know that even if God hadn't blessed you a single time in your life, he's still worthy of your praise. Even if he left us in, 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 if he left us in our sins, if he didn't ever send Jesus Christ, which I am so grateful to God that he did, even if he didn't, he still would be worthy of be praising. He would still be worthy of my worship nonetheless. And what happens is, is we, we, we receive those blessings. Yes, Jesus Christ has paid for my sin right? Amen. Yes and amen. Because of his death on a cross, he died that death for me that I might live a righteous life, a, a, to literally be clothed in his righteousness because he has been clothed in my sin. And now when Jesus, when God looks down on me, he sees perfection. But what happens is then things in our life begin to happen and we get really confused, right? Here's some examples. I deserve to have ch- children. So why am I struggling with infertility? After all, Aren't children a blessing from God? Or, I'm tired of being single. I've remained pure and I've sought Christ. So why hasn't he brought a spouse into my life? I'm such, now this one gets me. I'm such a hard worker. I don't understand why I still can't manage to find a better job. I can't seem to manage to to be a full-time pastor. I can't seem to manage to do, I mean, this is all over the place. Christians all over the place. This, we allow entitlement to sneak in. And it's because God loves us and he, he wants to bless us. But then the blessing becomes the curse in some sense because then we begin to believe that we actually deserve it. And what I love about Danny, he says, listen, I don't need your things. And I think that's the thought in our minds. If we're going to be people who live divergent lives, if we have a divergent faith, we're going to have to be people who say, listen, I worship God not because of the blessings. I worship him for who he is. I worship God apart from the things he's done for me. I worship God apart from it all. I just worship God because he is God. He made me in his image. It doesn't matter if I struggle with infertility. It doesn't matter if I struggle with singleness. It doesn't matter if I struggle with a job identity. 
God is God and he is worthy of my praise. And Daniel, out of everybody in all the world, Daniel could have felt entitled to a better life than exile after 80 years of faithfulness to God. Realize he wasn't in his hometown. He was still a foreigner in a, as a slave in a land. And he still did not have a sense of entitlement. That's amazing. And then verses 22 through 23. Unfortunately, just like some of you in here, King Belshazzar also skipped Jim's sermon last week. And uh, he needs to go back on Facebook page and pull up the video and listen to it. But nonetheless, he forgets what happens to uh, yeah, no, King Nevi, right? He just forgets the story. He's like, listen, just like your queen mother said, bro, how did you forget what happened? King Nevi was brought low. He was humbled, but then he repented. But nonetheless, then he says this in verse 22, but you, Belshazzar, his son, the one person who should know his story and understand the life lesson behind it, have not humbled yourself, though you knew this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines drank from them. You praised gods of silver and of gold, bronze, iron, wood, stone, which cannot see, hear, or understand, but you did not honor God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. And then he goes in, to verses 24 through 28. And he interprets, by the, um, th- by the way, this thing that was written by the hand of God would not have been in some strange language. It was, would have been in probably in Aramaic, the common language then. And somehow the magicians and company still couldn't read it. It probably had, would have had some type of, been numeric in some type of nature. If you look at the three words, mene meaning numbered, tekel meaning weighed, parson meaning divided. So it probably has some, uh, some numeric, probably like random numbers everywhere and like different words. So it probably was a little bit confusing, but it definitely would not have been in some strange language. Um, I don't have time to cover what the three words mean in detail, but I do want to cover the last one, Parson or Perez. What's so crazy about that, it's, it says that your kingdom will be divided among the Medes and Persians at that very moment in time when Daniel is proclaiming this message to Belshazzar. Little did they know the Persians were actually making a channel to divert the river. And that exact night, the channel had finished. They opened it up. The water had been diverted. And the whole king of the Medes and Persians went in under the the wall through the riverbed and overtook the whole kingdom that exact night. That's an amazing story. And you know what's so funny? is so many of us hear this story and think of the naivety of Belshazzar. How could he be throwing this party in the midst of defeat? Why couldn't he see what was right in front of him all along? Surely he wasn't oblivious to the falling of his kingdom. Right? You look at the story, don't you think? Like, bro, you've been under attack for two years. Your whole kingdom has been taken except for you. How do you sit there and act in arrogance? How do you take pride in your security? And yet, if, you're, if we're actually honest, as you and I, people here in this room today, we do the same exact thing. There are people here in this room today who God has been tearing down your kingdom for years. He's been chasing after you. He's, being lay, he's been laying sage to your heart. And did you know, no matter how high the walls, 
No matter the width of them, your defeat is inevitable. The Father is calling for you. He wants your heart. He wants your life. Let us be people who no longer continue in our ways and act as if everything is fine. Time for us to stop taking pride in our security and let us surrender. Listen, for some of you here in the room today, the writing is on the wall. The Father will prevail. It's time for us to start, stop using holy things, our body, our time, our resources, our talents for idol worship. For some of us, our deja vu experience is the overwhelming pursuit of God for your life. Over and over and over and over again, he has come after you. I feel like this has happened before. It happened as a kid. It happened when I was a teenager. Now I'm an adult, and it's happening again. It's time that we, as a people, if that's you in this room, if the writing on the wall is here for you today, it's time that you lay it down once and for all. It's time that you let your kingdom crumble and you allow God to come in. I want to pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word today. And God, I thank you for how you are continually pursuing, pursuing each and every one of us, Father. And you have laid sage some of the hearts here in this room, God, and they need to come to the realization that the writing is on the wall. What you have set out to do in their lives, Father, it is going to become, it's going to be brought to fruition. And so, God, I pray that here in this moment, once and for all, that you would give them this opportunity to lay down their kingdom. Father, help us stop taking pride in our security. Help us stop being so naive in the way we're going about our lives. God, you've been knocking on our walls. And it doesn't matter how high they are. It doesn't matter how wide. It doesn't matter how safe we feel in our lives. You will get to them. God, we're so grateful for the love that does that. We're so grateful for Jesus who makes that possible. So God, I just want to pray for someone here in this room today. If they haven't accepted you, your son Jesus as their savior, God, I pray today they would do that. That they would just come to you and say a prayer something like this, saying, Father, I'm so sorry for the sin in my life that has separated me from you. But I am grateful today for the death of Jesus, as I know that he died for my sins, that I might have an eternal life with you. So God, I accept by faith the gift that is found in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would come in. Father, I once and for all lay down my kingdom. Let it fall, Father, and I pray that you would build me back up. I'm tired of acting like everything's okay. I'm tired of acting like I'm safe and secure when all along I know that you're chasing after my heart. I know you've done it since I was a kid. You did it in my teenage years. And guess what? What I love about the story of Daniel is it shows me that it doesn't matter how old I am. 80 plus years old. God, you are still pursuing people at that age. If you prayed a prayer, something like that, I just ask that you would share it with somebody today, that we could rejoice with you, that we could celebrate you, that we could, we could help you in this new life that you've received. And based upon the authority of the word of God, you now have a, a special place in the heart of God. You have become his child. You are an heir. You will have a home in heaven 
with every other Christian here in this world. God, I just want to pray also in this moment for those of us who have been Christians for a while. And God, we thank you so much for your blessings, but God, I pray that you don't allow us the blessings to become a curse. I want to pray for those who are struggling now with entitlement. God, that you would help us just live divergent lives and not be that way. Help us be able to stay humble. Help us be able to to not expect anything from you, God, and just to be able to worship you for who you are. Father, you are so great. And you are so good, and we are so humbled that you would be here in this room in little old Irmo, South Carolina, that you would care for people as small as us, smaller than grains of sand on the sea. We love you, and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.